Compared to all of our studies so far in the book of Job, today will be somewhat of a headbanger. We have so far connected with the emotional part of the story, the devastation that Job experiences. We've been humbled by his response, his steadfast faith, even in the heart of his desperation. We have walked with him into this point of wishing for death because life had become so unbearable. We've wept. We've held on for hope. We have found surprisingly joy. This is where the book gets derailed from that. And this is where Job's friends become instruments of the great accuser, Satan, who is introduced at the beginning of this story rather than instruments of comfort and help. In the next two weeks, Lou and I are going to cover chapters 4 through 27. (laughs) We're not going to read it all on Sunday mornings. This week, I'm going to talk about the accusations, the primary arguments of Job's friends. Next week, Lou is going to cover Job's response to those accusations. The book gets quite philosophical, but it's very important that we understand what the author is trying to reveal to us about our misunderstandings of God, of suffering, of people, and the solution to suffering. Job's three friends represent three very distinct perspectives from which life can be seen. And yet they end up at the same place, at the same conclusion. The first person that we come to is Eliphaz. He's the first who speaks. And Eliphaz is a mystic. His belief system is based primarily on his own spiritual and life experience and even a claim that God spoke to him in a vision. We find his argument starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Now, remember, Job has just unburdened himself completely after seven days of silence with his friends. He has dared to open up the rawness of his heart and talk about the depth of his anguish to the point where death would be a welcome occurrence. How would you respond? What would you say? And that's what he's saying. How can I not respond? And he wants to help Job, but the problem is he's now trying to take what Job has said and fit it into what his life experience and this supposed mystical encounter with God himself has revealed to him about life. So we continue. Think how you have instructed many and how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. Job in the past was the very voice of wisdom to others who had suffered. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? That's sarcasm, and it will be revealed as we read further. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished. 
Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on people. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A a spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. What he's claiming now as a bolster to his argument is a divine revelation from God. And of course, (laughs) who can argue with God? That's the danger of people who say, God told me. Now, there are times God speaks to us, but I think the greatest evil is to give God credit for your wisdom to claim that your voice is God's voice. There can be no greater deceit or conceit because it puts a person in a position of saying God's wrong, not just you. We need to be careful when people come claiming to have this personal revelation, especially if they're not people who are in the Word of God and are grounded in the Word of God and can have discernment. And this is what that voice says to him. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without Wisdom? We skip forward to verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, he continues. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you. In seven, no harm will touch you. In famine, he will deliver you from death and in battle from the stroke of the sword. You will be protected from the lash of the tongue and need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine and need not fear the wild animals. For you have a covenant with the stones of the field and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure and will take stock in your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like sheaves gathered in season. We have examined this, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. Wow. Now, if we weren't in the book of Job, and you didn't know where this is coming from, and I just read these passages you might just assume that everything he's saying here is truth. But actually, it's wrong on the key level. His argument is this. We all reap what we sow for good 
or bad. That's what his life has shown him, and he claims divine confirmation of that argument. We all reap what we sow. Bildad is a traditionalist. Tradition suggests that Bildad is the oldest of the three, and he speaks from long-standing beliefs passed on down to him, and therefore are, are not to be questioned. We're just gonna read a bit of his argument in chapter eight. I'm gonna read the first 10 verses. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, by the way, one of the jokes is he was the shortest man in the Bible because he was a Shuhite. Anyway. I was just informing you of the kind of jokes other people say about Bildad. How long will you say such things? Your words are blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Wow, that's something strong to say about someone who lost all their kids. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Notice the consistency here. The goal here is that he gets back to that prosperous place that they presume ought to be the goal and even God's will for him. You'll find that in each of these arguments. Verse seven, your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? This is Bildad's perspective. He is the voice of tradition. And his argument is tragedy is clear evidence of guilt. Tragedy is clear evidence of guilt. Zophar is a rationalist. Tradition is that Zophar is the youngest of the three friends, very confident in his own sense of wisdom and logic. And as often happens with young people, they are overly confident in what life has taught them. Zophar is a little arrogant and dismissive of Job. He speaks immediately with great anger and disrespect. We're going to find his primary comments in chapter 11. So flip forward just a page or two. Thank you for staying with me through all of this reading today. And obviously, we're just scratching the surface of, of these chapters. Then Zophar, the Namathite, replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Wow. Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. 
Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceivers. And when he sees evil, does he not take note? But the witless can no more become wise than a wild donkey's cult can be born human. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face and you will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life can be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You will look about you and rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Now, were you to read with more detail, you would see that Zophar, as a rationalist, spends much more time attacking Job, dismantling his argument as faulty. And he believes wholeheartedly in his own sense of wisdom, even though his life lacks experience to challenge and deepen that wisdom. But even from that perspective, his argument is similar to his friends. A happy and pleasant life is a reward for good living. How many young, well-meaning people go about life with that sense of faith that if I work hard, if I live a good life, nothing is impossible for me to achieve. Ultimately, what we see in all three of these perspectives on life and on God and on suffering is that they all come to a common solution. Job, in their mind, has caused his situation by some sin unknown to them. What is happening here is like a trial, but it's a reverse trial. In their way of thinking, God has pronounced a verdict on Job. His circumstances are God's judgment. That means we must assume he has been found guilty. And their job is to deconstruct the trial and find out what the accusation is. Do you see the point? Your circumstance is a judgment of God, therefore guilt is implied. And what we need to do is to find out what you have done wrong. Job has caused a situation by some sin, even though none of them, through all of these chapters, can point out what that sin is. Think about that. They are so stuck in their view of justice, their knowledge of who Job is is set aside. See? So in this battle, this boxing ring, there are only three corners. One corner is what we refer to as the retribution principle, which we've seen in each of these points. You get what you deserve. Good is rewarded with good. Evil is rewarded with evil, both in this life and also in eternity. In the second corner is a just God. And much of what they say is true about God, although not complete. 
The third corner is Job's righteousness. Job's blamelessness. These are the three ideas that are warring. And these accusers, these counselors, end up having to choose which of those they will defend. And since God is not in need of our defense, what they all end up doing is fighting out of the retribution principle. And the one thing that's left to attack is Job's righteousness. That has to be the problem here. Job has caused this situation by some sin unknown to them. And if Job admits his wrongdoing and turns from his sin to God, his happy and prosperous life will be restored. That's their counsel to him. And it's as though they forget that they're looking at someone who was sitting in ashes on the garbage dump outside of the city in which he was at one time the greatest of all men, boils from head to foot, scratching himself with shards of pottery. They're dealing with someone that is absolutely broken that they no longer handle with care. They begin handling with anger and judgmentalism and utter disrespect, all because they're caught with this common idea that you get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. And therefore, if you're experiencing difficulty, it has to be your fault. Any philosophy based simply on that ultimately fails. And that's why we're going to take one more pass at these three friends, no longer from the storyline and the philosophies that the author is trying to represent, but how each of these friends actually represent three distinct voices of religion at all times and even today. And in the same way, their three perspectives all led them to a common solution for Job. What we're going to see is that these three voices of religion all lead to the singular deceit and ultimate failure of all religion. First, Eliphaz is the voice of experience. And what he reveals to us is the shortcoming of basing our beliefs on merely our experience and personal revelation from God. And the first thing that we see about this type of approach to religion is that it is limited to our personal observations. Many religions are formed exclusively out of this idea of your own personal journey and that inner voice. But it even shows up in Christianity, doesn't it? Those who are not students of the word, they'd rather experience God mystically in their life, looking for signs, but they're not doing the work of the word of God. And the problem is your view even of your Christian faith is limited to your personal observations. And what that means is that you get a false positive. In other words, your life is not a large enough sample group (laughs) for what faith is about. And the result of this type of approach to any religion, including Christianity, is a religion of superstition. Because I did this and God did that, or I didn't do this and and God did that or didn't do that, then that becomes the rule. It's based on superstition. Years ago, I was uh, participating in um, a, a Christian festival in Lowell, Massachusetts, and there was a singer, wonderful man. I had no doubt that he loved the Lord. But he was telling a story of how bad his day had gone. 
car broke down. He had paint in the back of the car, and he hit a bump, and the paint opened, the can spilled. And, and then he said, and then it occurred to me, I didn't have my devotions this morning. He said that, <laughs> and he believed it. Now, that is an exaggerated example, but to whatever degree you say, I'm repeating this action because when I do this, this happens. Your faith is nothing but superstition. Whether it's in the pew here, or whether it's on some island of yet unreached people where their sacrifice of a human being led to the angry volcano god stop smoking, and therefore every time it smokes, we'll kill another one. It's all a religion of superstition. That's the voice of experience. The second voice is Bildad's, and he is the voice of tradition. And what we see in him is the tendency to rely too heavily on what has been passed down to us that leads to an overemphasis and reliance on tradition. It's comfortable to keep repeating what not only have we been doing, but, well, you know that common phrase, this is the way we've always done it. (laughs) There's comfort in that. And traditions become confused for godly convictions and truth. Somewhere along the line, we forget why we did something. It's just that we do it. And we've experienced God maybe in it, and therefore it has to be right. And if you talk about removing it, well, then that's, that's actually immoral. It's ungodly for you to stop doing things that way. I could sit here today and tell you example after example of how a movement of God leads to an innovation that is used of God that is repeated and passed on to generations and becomes tradition and then becomes irrelevant but held onto for dear life by people who think that in letting go of the tradition, somehow they're letting go of a godly conviction. I'll just give you one simple example because it's what comes to mind right now. Sunday evening services. I grew up uh, in a church where we had Sunday morning, we had Sunday night service, which was more or less when Christians came together, it was a little more casual, a lot of good singing, and the teaching was more about the Christian life. It was thought of as a more casual experience, and then Wednesday night prayer meeting. When we were on vacation, the way we knew that it was a good church was on their sign, they had Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday prayer meeting. Those are the traditional things. When our church started and we could not really have a Sunday night meeting, my dad thought, you gotta have Sunday night meetings. That's where the people get together. And I tried to explain to them how life groups is where we do community, where we get together. But here's the thing. Do you know why Sunday night services were started? Sunday night services started in America when electricity came to small towns and was only around the town common. And you know where the church was? Right at the heart of the town. So preachers got this idea, let's put lights in, and then let's invite all the region to come and sit in this electric light, and we'll preach the gospel to them. Sunday night services were actually an innovation of a modern development, and they were a seeker service. They were not for Christians. But over time, they became ineffective, Everybody got lights. People didn't need to sit in a church to go, wow, this is cool. (laughs) They could sit in their own home and just turn the light on and off all by themselves. 
And so believers started coming on Sunday nights. Why? Because it's what we do. And then it just became for us. And then it became essential, and you don't mess with it. Traditions are confused for convictions. And what it ends up with is a religion of legalism. Yeah. The third voice of religion is Zophar. And we're going to call him the voice of youthful passion. I love the passion of younger generations. I love our young adults in this church. Right now in the media, millennials are getting somewhat of a bad rap. Can I just say to that, (laughs) I think this generation that's coming up is an amazing generation. I love the fact that we're enfolding and uh, empowering and releasing them, and they're awesome. But with that comes the need for maturity, right? Sometimes youthful passion can be overly confident in its rightness and think that their spiritual fervor is adequate enough to justify their ideas. The problem with a younger generation that is off on its own is that it can overreach and and cause damage. So far is that to Job. Here's the problem with that when it's too strong. It leads to an overreaction against all tradition. It becomes all about upheaval. Everything that's from the past is ineffective and old, and the people that did it failed in some way, and we're going to get it right. It disconnects itself from tradition. That's why I love the journey, because we're multi-generations. We get the zeal and the energy and the passion of our millennials, and we get the wisdom of that crowd right over there. And over there, right? I love that last month for the young adult lunch, we made it a mixed generation lunch. You had to be under 30 or over 75. It was awesome to come together. We need that. Otherwise, we're left being so justified in our passion that we villainize anything that came before us. And then secondly, logic is confused for wisdom and passion for understanding. Just because I'm passionate about it and I can argue my point, that justifies. See, That's what Zophar represents. And you know what kind of religion that produces? That produces a religion for zealots. And zealots can be very dangerous people in all religions. So three voices to religion that share one common deceit. And this is what I really want you to see here. The shared deceit of all religion. Now let me make sure I I explain to you what I mean by religion because it can be used in broad ways. And in in a sociological sense, Christianity is one of the great world religions. And I understand that definition of it. But what we mean by religion is man's attempt to make sense of life, of God, and of the eternal and to establish a set of practices and beliefs that will help them make contact and achieve whatever purpose their life is here on earth. And men have been creating religion since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. When Adam and Eve lost fellowship with God, from that moment on, people have been trying to find their way back. And that's what world religions are. World religions are our attempt 
to find our way back to God and to our eternal purpose. But they all share a common deceit. And that is that we get what we deserve in this life or in the afterlife. In one way or another, they all share that deceit. Some will be honest enough to admit that we don't understand the nature of suffering here. But at least in the afterlife, you will get what you deserve. You may not get it now, but you will get what you deserve for good or for bad. And you know what that means? That means, and I want you to really think about this, all religion is simply an extension of our original sin. And our original sin is this, that we have authority over the outcome of our lives, that we're the ones that control it. We take control. That was the original sin. God said this, but I choose this. I'm going to take control of my destiny. I will be in charge. Is that not what is at the core of all man-made religion? It presumes we determine our destiny. Yeah, I think with little exception, you will find that philosophy in all major world religions, including Judaism, and to some degree, in forms of Christianity. And so because of that, all religions ultimately fail. They fail in terms of their goal of actually connecting us back to God and have no answer for undeserved suffering. In the face of arguments like Job's, his life is an argument against the shared deceit of all religion. He's the exception to the religious rule, and therefore, the religious rule is false. You following me? This is so important that we get this. Because it helps us understand that our faith, the true faith, is not a man-made thing. We needed something better. We needed, we needed a solution that was out of our own hands because we can't solve our own issues. And that's what the Bible says. Christ came to earth not to establish a world religion. Christ came to earth to restore a broken relationship with Creator. See, Christ is what God did to solve our fallenness. Religion is what we attempt to do to solve our fallenness. And we will always fall short because ultimately, as Paul says in Romans 3, everyone falls short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and we cannot get back from that on our own. One of the places where Paul speaks to this very deceit, how we come to peace with God, how we are reconciled with God, and that's Ephesians chapter two, verses eight to nine, and let's say it together. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Do you see how Paul is addressing the very deceit of man-made religion? You don't get credit. You can't live a life good enough. So the gospel message is not about, here's a better religion than yours. The gospel message is religion fails, and so God alone restores. God does what we can't do. 
He steps into human form. He lives the life that we can only dream of living. And in that holy place, he takes the punishment for our sin. And the instrument of cruel execution becomes a bridge for us to be brought back to God. You see, the gospel is God's answer to our failure, which our religion only demonstrates more. Now, it is altogether possible that you are here today following hard as best as you can after God, and you suddenly see the difference. A dear friend of mine Years ago, at, at my last church, when I came to the church, he was attending and appeared to be part of the church body. He came, he carried his Bible, he took notes, he showed up for all the different events, and I just assumed he was a committed Christian. And he asked to meet with me for lunch, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm trying really hard, and it just doesn't seem to be working. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, it turns out he came to a church hungry, and he saw people carrying a Bible. He went and got a Bible. He saw people worshiping, he, he worshiped, he took notes. But there was a disconnect, and, and what it boiled down to was this statement, I'm trying really hard. And all I had to do was say to him, my friend, that's the problem. Not only can you not try hard enough, you don't have to. True connection with God comes from surrendering your need to control the outcome, to recognize that you can't achieve the outcome, that Christ achieved that for you, and by surrendering that self-reliance and receiving Christ's gift. And if you haven't done that, no matter how hard you're trying this Christian thing, it's a fool's faith but it's simple. Stop trying and receive God's gift. Surrender to him this very moment in faith. Maybe you say, boy, that's me. I I realize I've been trying. I've been self-dependent even in my faith. I want to stop trying, stop boasting in my effort as though somehow that will achieve right standing with God. And at this moment, I surrender to Christ I let go of my effort, I admit my sin, my need for him, I surrender to him as my solution, my Lord, my Savior. If that's you today, would you raise your hand so I can see? Good, praise God, thank you, good. I wanna encourage those of you who have raised your hand to seek out myself or Lou, someone here you know is a Christian, or on a connect card say, I want to meet with someone about becoming a Christian, let us follow up with you and pray with you and encourage you in that. Praise God. Father, thank you for this amazing truth. We build such sophisticated structures on which we hang our hopes and our dreams and by which we judge one another and find others less worthy than ourselves. None of us are worthy, and yet all of us are welcome. All of us are loved and are welcome if we simply surrender 
to you and receive your gift. And we thank you that you're willing to do what none of us can do for ourselves, and that is take the punishment and point us to life in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.